Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. And SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get the SeatGeek app, you can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, instantly find seats. Doesn't have to be baseball tickets. Doesn't even have to be sports tickets. SeatGeek has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available too. No matter what event you're attending, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, Download that SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and so is my compatriot, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello, Ben. I am positively overflowing with enthusiasm for this fun fact, and I, I, don't, I don't care if you don't find it interesting. I'm going to tell the whole story right now. I'm going to pretend that I do, even if I don't. All right, cool. I was at the Astros Indian Series this weekend, and I was talking to another writer, uh, Richard Dean, who writes for MLB.com, and he was telling me this story that involves Hoyt Wilhelm hitting one home run in his career, but he hit it in his first major league start. So it uh-huh. wasn't literally his first game because he pitched out of the bullpen a couple times, but it was the first game in which he batted. So <laughs> then he played for 25 yeah, more exactly, years. Right, which is <laughs> an incredibly remarkable thing. So yeah. I wondered if he was the only person to have done this, to have homered in his essentially major league debut and then never homered again. The answer to this question turns out is not all that interesting. There's like 20 <laughs> odd people who've done it, including Kenta Maeda uh, so far, Tommy Malone, Denny McLean, uh, mm. Wilkin Ramirez. I'm not sure exactly how many because um, there are some blind spots where play index wouldn't have gotten to it. Uh-huh. So there was a name at the top of one of the pages that uh, looked familiar to me, and that was uh, Jim Adusi, who is a journeyman, first baseman, outfielder, left-handed throwing, left-handed hitting. He's with the Detroit Tigers right now. He didn't homer in his Major League debut, but he does have exactly one homer, mm-hmm. and his father also played in the major leagues. He was also left-handed hitting, left-handed throwing outfielder slash first baseman. Mm-hmm. Uh, same name. Same name. Jim Adusi, Adusi Feast, uh, played in <laughs> 76 games, 197 plate appearances, career OPS plus of 67, and exactly one major league home run. And Adusi Pair, 70 games, 150 plate appearances, OPS plus of 57, exactly one major league home run. <laughs> So we should root for the young one to retire so that this fun fact can stay intact. I wonder, because you went through this with the Matt Albers thing, and I guess right. you're still going through it with Ryan Webb. Like, do you root for the 
fun fact to continue or do you root for the player to succeed yeah that's a tough one and he is succeeding so far he's uh, he's got a almost 900 ops in 13 games for the tigers yeah this he's year. also playing behind miguel cabrera and just went on the dl so success yeah. is kind of relative i think what we should root for is for the younger Ducey to retire and then to have children and then for mm. one of them to play in the major leagues and hit exactly one home run <laughs> yeah okay i don't know if there's a father-son combination i'd be willing to hear counter arguments certainly rather than do any sort of research myself because that just sounds like a lot of work but like i wonder if a father and son have ever traced each other's careers this closely yeah that is an interesting question he did have 28 homers in korea a couple of years ago <laughs> he was a good hitter in korea Korea, but Which he should hasn't. translate to 53 home runs in the major right. leagues, according to Eric Thames. Hasn't quite done the Thames thus far, but yeah, that's fun. I guess I'm pulling for him to surpass his father. Doesn't every parent want their offspring to do even better than they did? Make them proud. Every good so parent, at least. I'm sure a Ducey senior is rooting for a Ducey junior to surpass his career record. All right. So we have a couple guests to get to later in the show. We're going to talk about a somewhat depressing team, a team that's losing a whole lot, the Miami Marlins with Tim Healy of the Sun Sentinel. We're going to talk about Giancarlo Stanton, who is frustrated with the Marlins losing a whole lot. And we're going to ask about the future of his contract, which really has seemed to change radically since it was signed just a few years ago. But first, we're going to talk about a team that's having almost everything go right lately, the Texas Rangers, whose 10-game winning streak was snapped on Saturday. They then won on Sunday, so they've won 11 of their last 12. And how streaks come and go. Hot teams aren't always good. Cold teams aren't always bad. The Rangers have been one of the hottest teams in baseball. They've also been one of the most perplexing teams in baseball, at least to me. So we wanted to get some answers. So we've brought on a beat writer whose work we really enjoy, Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers for WFAA Sports. Hey, Levi. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good. So Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs pointed out in a post about the Rangers last week that they've done as well as they have without much of a contribution from the players who were expected to be the best for them. If you look at each team's yeah. preseason five top projected players, the Rangers have gotten one of the, the lowest wins above replacement totals from those guys who would be Beltre, Darvish, Hamels, Odor, and Lucroy. And Darvish has been good. The others have been hurt or disappointing in some way. So for people who haven't paid that close attention, can you tell us where the Rangers production has come from? Magic spells and uh, prayer and eagle feathers, I think, are the three top contributors to this win streak. Alternately, if I wanted to be a little more sarcastic about it, I could say they've gotten really big contributions from the San Diego Padres, the <laughs> Oakland Athletics, and also the, uh, the Phillies. So uh, you're, you're right to say that it's been perplexing. The other night they had four hits from Jared Hoying, who came up. The night that they lost the streak, A.J. Griffin had a bad game. Griffin, in his own right, has been a, a surprise contributor. He was 3-0 and before his, or 4-0 before his last start. And then they got four and two-thirds innings of scoreless relief from Austin Bibbins Dirks, who is a 32-year-old rookie who is in his 12th professional season and just got his first call-up to the big leagues. <laughs> so, yeah, it has been fun. Obviously, it's always fun to watch a team uh, win and get unexpected contributions. But it, it is also, you know, for fans of the team, there is some hesitation. Like, yeah, 10-game win streak is great, but it'd be really nice to see them do it against some good teams before we really fully buy in emotionally. Yeah. And, um, 
And yeah, you know, if they can keep it afloat, they do have Cole Hamels coming back in, I think, about six weeks. Adrian Beltre is set to return soon. Tyson Ross should be around in a couple of weeks. So they do have some people set to return that could really give them a boost or should expect to give them a boost. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting watch this season. I do feel like this is kind of what we were all saying about the Rangers this time last year, basically, right? They were doing Mm -hmm. sort of the same thing, not getting much of a contribution from the players they were expected to get a contribution from and somehow having incredible timing on offense, especially, I think, where they were just so clutch, like one of the clutchest teams ever, which is not the sort of thing Mm -hmm. that usually repeats over the course of multiple seasons. But I just looked now and they are leading the major leagues in cluster luck, which is probably something we've cited before on this podcast, but it's basically just how well do you bunch your hits and your preventing of other teams hits together. If uh, if you string a bunch of hits together in one inning, you score some runs. If you have the same number of hits and distribute them over many innings, you don't score some runs and some teams luck out more than others in that respect. And it looks like the Rangers have had some good fortune there. So I don't know whether Rangers fans are buying into a banister magic or something that is getting them to do this sort of thing or, or whether it's just a extension of the luck that lasted all last year somehow. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of hard to tell. Before this win streak, I think if you had checked the, those numbers, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but I would be willing to bet that they were, were not yeah. uh, anywhere near the top of the league because they, were, they went out and I think they were 0 for 7 or 0 for 8 in their first one run games this season. Yeah. And then you're right, in this, in this win streak, they've done exactly what they were, were doing last year where they were are, are bunching runs together and you know it's not it's not just last year that this narrative was was true i mean maybe with the with the cluster luck yes but as far as like getting contributions from unexpected people 2015 was you know this is the third year in a row and it so conveniently coincides with jeff bannister's uh, arrival in texas and in 2015 you know wandy rodriguez set the franchise record for most batters retired in a row and then i don't i don't know what wandy rodriguez is doing i don't think he's pitched in the big league since he was cut by the rangers halfway through 2015 nick martinez was pitching like an ace in 2015 so it's yeah it's definitely (laughs) it's been three years of of getting getting these contributions from guys that you just don't expect to to and you know yes they're big league players and and you don't ever want to if i were to say this sort of thing to jeff bannister I, i know that i would get a stern look and and a uh and, and I could almost, I'm not going to do it, but I could almost give you a Jeff Bannister impersonation <laughs> that when he tells me that baseball is a hard game and you'll get to the big leagues if you're not capable of playing. But yeah, I mean, it's, it would be silly to say that you expect the same thing from Jared Hoying that you got from Carlos Gomez. And yet here he comes and in his second game, he gets four hits and almost hits for the cycle. So it's crazy. And I, I wish that I had a better uh, insight for you as to what's happening, but sometimes I think it, it all comes back down to just baseball being perhaps the most unpredictable game that we have. So I wanted to ask about one of those guys in particular, and you might not have a good answer on this, but Andrew Kashner, somehow the Rangers are only his fourth big league organization, which seems like he should have twice as many teams on his resume. And he's only 30 years old, but the Rangers took a flyer on him and he's uh, leading all Rangers starters in ERA this year, despite the peripherals not looking good at all. So like, is he doing anything else or is he just, you know, just more of the same? 
You know, I think it's kind of more of the same. He did mention after his last start that he credited uh, A.J. Griffin for helping him understand. He said, you know, A.J. Griffin is the best pitcher on this team for setting up hitters and sequencing and, and keeping people off balance. And he said he learned a lot from A.J. about doing that. And you kind of have, I can see that. It makes sense because they they do kind of do similar things where they just, they go up there and they throw the ball in the strike zone and, and you know, it kind of just works out. They get bad contact. And um, of course, Saturday night, it, it did not work out for AJ Griffin. He gave up four home runs and I think he gave up nine runs in, in his uh, short outing here in Detroit. But, but yeah, it's kind of this fearless mentality of like, well, you know, I know I don't throw 98, so I guess I'm going to throw it up there and just trust that baseball is a game where people fail more than they succeed. And let's see what happens. And so far it's, it's worked really well for them. So, so yeah, Kashner is, you're, you're exactly right. He's another one of those guys. You're right. His, his FIP is, does not suggest that he would be as successful as he's, as he's been. But there you go. He's, he succeeded, and and then the other the other interesting thing is that he didn't get a win until you know, he led the team in ERA and didn't get his for whatever you value the pitcher win. He didn't get his first win until uh, earlier this week. So, and you mentioned the lousy record in one run games before the streak started, which was of course their calling card last year, being amazing in those games mm-hmm. and. Their bullpen on the whole has not been good as we speak. It has been the second worst American League bullpen by deserved run average. And we know how it started with Sam Dyson having really a historic stretch of blowing games early in the year. So who else is in here who's kind of making up for that? Has Dyson made any progress at all since that rough stretch? I still He still has two strikeouts in, in 12 and two-thirds yeah. innings. Not so good. Um, so is there hope for the bullpen? I think there's hope. I mean, talk about all the perplexing storylines. The bullpen maybe maybe should have been the first thing. Yeah. Because yeah, everybody and and people whose baseball value, baseball opinions I value really highly, like the, the guys that have been doing this for much longer than me. Everybody just unanimously was like, well, at least the bullpen's going to be good. Right. Like, we don't know what's going on with the lineup, and the you know the rotation might take a while to get into full swing, but you know the bullpen. Don't worry about it. And then, yeah, they, they came out and they were not great. Dyson has looked better in his last few outings. He's, he's never been a really high strikeout guy, mm-hmm. um, despite having, you know, high velocity, but a lot of his success has come from getting, you know, ground balls with his, his bowling ball sinker. And, and when he was struggling earlier in the year, he, his sinker just wasn't sinking. It was moving laterally and he couldn't figure out why. And he was frustrated by it, but he's, you know, he's seen better results his last couple of outings. But it's kind of been across the board. I mean, even even Matt Bush, who has you know stepped into the closers role before he stepped into the closers role, he had a couple of bad outings. He's been better lately, but you know it was a pretty tumultuous outing on Friday night when he was uh, at the series opener here in Detroit. Tony Barnett's ERA and his his hits allowed has been quite a bit higher than last year. Then Jake Diekman has been on the disabled list all year and, and will continue to be for at least a couple more months as he is recovering from surgery for ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of kind of everybody you look at. Keone Kella has been really hit and miss. There, there have been times that he comes out and just looks unhittable. And you go, all right, this is the kid that we thought was coming up. And then there are other times he comes out and gives up a grand slam. And you're like, well, that's, that's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if I can use a, a cliche, <laughs> uh, with the bullpen this year. Do you know how Deakman's doing? I, was, I meant to ask about him. Yeah, he's doing well. He said uh, while the team is out on the road, he has about a week 
window between he's I think it's like six weeks after surgery he's not allowed to throw and then he's got another week or so before the final surgery so he said um, just to kind of gain some conditioning where he can while the team's on the road he said uh, I'm just going to come out to the ballpark and throw a ball against the wall for for a couple of days and that just sounded so lonely I'm like man I'll come play catch with you if you want and he said I'm, I'm just going to come out and put on the headphones and throw the ball against the wall. So uh, he's doing well. He's in good spirits, but you can tell it's, it's a grind on him to not be playing. But as you know, as far as outside baseball goes and just generally in good spirits and he's been around the team and hanging out, he did, you know, doesn't have to be, but he even came out to spring training and was out there for a couple of weeks. So um, I think a couple of weeks, I think he's out there for the whole thing. He was, yeah. He was there when I was there. I was shocked to see him in the clubhouse. Yeah. He's very much a, a good team guy. And I think he gains, I think energy and I don't know if you want to call it good vibes from being around the clubhouse and just kind of remembering like, this is what I'm coming back to. This is why I've, you know, this is my reason for working hard to, to recover. So I guess this 10 game win streak is a little surprising, but also nobody really thought that they were as bad as their 13 and 20 start would have indicated. So what changes in like the mood or the attitude of the team have you noticed over the past couple of weeks as they've started to dig out of that hole? Yeah. I mean, I think it's about a, exactly what you would predict you know when a team is mired in a, a losing streak or a really bad early start it's you know guys are frustrated and and the words that you hear come out of their mouth are this is baseball we're gonna come back the next day and you know we keep our heads up we're not frustrated we believe in each other and and all these things but you you know just in the body language and in the in the number of guys that are available during clubhouse media availability <laughs> you can tell that everybody is just really frustrated and then, uh, you know, in a 10-game win streak, it is more up-tempo, and, and there are more guys kind of bouncing around the clubhouse and, and um, you know, happy to talk to the media because it's I think they get easier questions when they're winning than, than when they're losing. It's, it's always easier to answer, like, so that was cool. How are you guys doing this? Than to get the, uh, so why are you guys so terrible this year? <laughs> I think as far as clubhouse, like, interactions with each other, the, you know, the card games are still there and the ping pong is still there, that... The routine of things I don't think changed much. It's, they were they were certainly not you know moping around the clubhouse. You know I think they and the coaching staff too. I think they do a good job of of keeping those guys pretty pretty engaged in believing that a comeback is possible. And 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 that's why I do maybe a little bit buy into some of the Bannister effect as far as comebacks and and cluster luck is that I think the guys believe in that. And so I think to some extent it doesn't matter if I believe in it or not, I think if the players believe in it, you know, it's, it's hard to find a statistic that lays this out, but I, you know, when a player goes up to the, to the plate, believing that he's going to, going to succeed, I, I do think the success rate is higher than when he is going up there fighting his head about, you know, man, last time I, he crossed me up and I was expecting off speed. And uh, I think and Joey Gallo is a good example of that, that last year he really, really struggled and I spent the off season anytime anybody would ask me about Joey Gallo, he needs to learn how to fail and to stretch that out a little bit. He needs to learn how to forget that he just failed and come back and, and be himself in the next at bat. And then, um, you know, somewhere about four weeks into the season this year, he, he said in an interview, like, Hey, I, I learned how to fail. And the coaches told me like, don't worry about being a guy that hits 300. You're not that guy. You're a guy that's going to strike out. You're going to walk a lot. And then you're going to hit the crap out of the ball when you make contact and just go be a guy that is the best version of the guy that hits the crap out of the ball. And so he, you don't see this shoulder slump when he goes back and you don't, you know, you see him kind of like talking to himself and pep talking to himself like, all right, I got this. I, I can do it next time. And, 
and his batting average is still pretty low. It's under 200, I think, still this year. Um, but his OPS is in the high sevens or low eights, and he's yeah, he's hit 13 home runs, and and then he also is a big contributor defensively and on the bases. He's an athlete, and he's a fast guy. He runs the bases really well. He's a smart kid. Um, so I guess coaching is probably as much psychology as it is anything. You find what what a person's strengths and weaknesses are, and try to enable them to be the best version of that player that they can be. What's it like watching a guy that big play third base every day? <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I think the only comparable, uh, and, you know, I'm young enough that I don't, I don't remember a lot of the, I think I was like 10 years old when Mike Schmidt retired. Um, and I don't even know how big he was, but Miguel Sano is the other guy that I can think of that is like this big lumbering dude. And you expect him to kind of be like Rob Deere, like a guy that, he just kind of lumbers up to the plate, and if he doesn't hit a home run, he might not be fast enough to get the first base. And neither of them are that. And, and man, Gallo is—he's like a, like a horse leopard or something. He's <laughs> just this huge athlete that moves in ways that you don't expect him to move. And um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch. And man, if you ever get a chance to see him like hustle a throw from third base, like if you get a, a Billy Hamilton esque guy going down the first baseline and, and you watch him uncork a throw from third. He um he's got an amazing arm. I think he he hit like ninety eight is the number I've heard when he was in high school, and a lot of teams wanted to draft him as a pitcher. And um yeah, it's like borderline frightening to watch him throw the ball to first base. And uh, after a game one time, I said, yeah, Rue was talking to you after that throw to first base. What was going on? He's like, yeah. I've done that to him a lot in the minor leagues. He hates it when I throw it that hard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and I'm happy that Gallo's doing well. I've been fascinated by him for a while. But when Joey Gallo's your best hitter, that's maybe not the best sign because Gallo, as incredible as his power right. is, is striking out still almost 40% of the time and hitting 184. And it's hard to be a great offensive player when you do that. So is there someone else on the Rangers other than Beltre, who, of course, they hope comes back and is Beltre mm -hmm. still? Is there someone else who just hasn't put it together offensively or, or who you think could be significantly better than he has been thus far? Uh, yeah, Johnny Hole team. Um, it's <laughs> Kind of everybody has has struggled in weird ways. Mike Napoli is kind of you know he's about 30, 35. You kind of expect that at some point his bat speed is going to slow and he's going to start missing pitches. It just happens to everybody. He still hit a few home runs, but his batting average is is really low. He's missing, he's swinging and missing a lot. Uh, Rugnet Odor similarly went through a pretty rough stretch of struggling offensively. Elvis Andrews has been a bright spot though. He's I think last year's season that everybody thought might be a fluke. I, I don't think it was a fluke. And in fact, there's sort of some murmur among the, the blogosphere in, in DFW that, that maybe Ron Washington, nobody will speak ill of Ron Washington. He was a really beloved manager and obviously the most winning manager in team history, but, but whispers that maybe Ron Washington wanted to turn Elvis Andrews into Ron Washington, which is, you know, defense first kind of slap hitter, a lot of bunts and speed. And Anders is a bigger guy than than Ron was. And when he left and Bannister arrived, you, you started to see the the leg kick from Anders and, and he's he's got more home runs than usual and he's he's hitting the ball really hard. And that's been a, a fun improvement to watch. But yeah, Chu is gonna be Chu hopefully at some point. Delano de Shields, I think, can be sort of a prototypical leadoff hitter if he if he gets it together, which he has in places this year. And then, and then sometimes he'll start striking out again. So um, there's, there's reason to believe that the batting will come around, that the offense will come around. They've, they've got the names. They've got guys who have a track record of 
of having done it in the past. Um, mm -hmm. So as I think is always the case, there's definite cause for optimism and definite cause for panic, depending on what you're more naturally inclined to. Yeah. And I'm kind of scooping myself here because I'm writing about this, but Jonathan Lucroy has the worst framing stats in the major leagues I'm right now. I'm glad you're writing is, about that because I, <laughs> man. It's kind of crazy given yeah, that he was the face of framing a few years ago. He also hasn't hit a whole lot, although he homered over the weekend. Is he right? right? Is he healthy? Is there anything going on with him? Yeah. We had one of our one of our writers at WFA, uh, Samuel Hale, also about this and mm -hmm. and explored kind of what was going on and he, and he said that uh it is it is kind of a mystery that luke roy has been not great at framing and, and even somebody brought up during the the second game in detroit that aj griffin i don't know how much credence you give catcher era but when he has pitched to robinson Torinos, his era is in the low twos like 220 something and when he's pitching to luke roy his era is in the high sevens and this is not just like one or two starts. I think he's had 11 with Lucroy and 13 with Torinos. Yeah, I, I wish I had better insight as to why that is, but you're right. It's been on a kind of a steady, slow decline. And then this year, he's kind of fallen off of a cliff with his framing. And yeah. there have been even a couple of occasions that I have watched. And sometimes it's hard to see from the press box. You know, I, I certainly can't call balls and strikes from up there, but then I'll watch on the monitor and, and I'll watch on the at-bat app to see where a pitch was and, and a couple that I thought looked really good. And then I watch on TV and, and he, you know, it's almost middle middle and he's taking a swipe at it and running. It, it looks like he's crossed up and doesn't know what's coming. And that to me, it's less of an explanation and more of a deepening of the mystery because yeah. Lucro is also really known for being somebody who is over-prepared, like really, really prepares. And like, he's got his notebooks and, and he's, he's told us before, like you can control one thing before you got on the field and that's your preparation. So he is known to be a guy that is really well prepared. And I don't know, I don't know what's causing it, mm -hmm. why he is framing poorly this year, but you're, you're absolutely right that it's happening. And his, his bat has been a little sketchy this year. So I don't know, other than to just concur with you, I don't have as much <laughs> of an explanation as to why that's happening. All right. Well, I don't know whether we've established whether the Rangers are good or not, or not but uh, no, I think we've, we've established <laughs> that Levi doesn't know either. And that's so we can <laughs> let ourselves off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the only thing that I have that is of any use is um, that I know that their, their swing outside the zone rate has dropped in their winning streak. When they were losing, they were swinging outside the zone about 15 to 20% more than, than when they were winning. So, so there's that. They stopped swinging at bad pitches as much. Mm -hmm. We solved it, guys. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And there's Beltre and Hamels coming back, and that can't be a bad thing. Yeah, and Tyson Ross. Don't forget about Tyson yeah, Ross. Yeah, Tyson Ross, too. I think a, a real factor. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you can find Levi writing about the Rangers at WFAA.com. You can find him on Twitter at 32EFIS. Thanks, Levi. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Sorry, sorry, I didn't have any more definitive answers, but I know I think you guys are right. It's just a um, bizarre mystery this year, so yeah. it'll be fun to see how it plays out. I would trust you less if you had definitive answers. Yeah. For everything, so. <laughs> All right. Oh, cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll we'll talk to you soon. All right. We'll be right back with Tim Healy of the Sun Sentinel to talk about Stanton, Stanton's contract, and the Marlins. And he throws behind Stanton. Well, you knew that was coming, or at least you had an idea was coming. And here come the Marlins, and here come the Dodgers. Miami's not in a great mood. Kershaw is in the middle of it, jawing at Stanton right now. Bullpens are coming in. Mattingly, someone's got a hold of Mattingly right now. Don't forget that John Carlos Stanton was seriously injured in Milwaukee three years ago. 
So the Miami Marlins lost on Sunday to plunge their record to 15 and 28, which put them one point of winning percentage ahead of the Padres in the exciting, scintillating race for the worst record in baseball. And probably no one who's on the Marlins is very happy about that. No one who follows the Marlins is very happy about that. But we know for sure that John Carlos Stanton is not happy about that. He said on Thursday night that his frustration level with the Marlins losing is at its highest level ever. And so we wanted to find out a little bit about maybe his mindset, the future of the Marlins, the future of Stanton's contract, because that has really changed, I think, completely since it was signed. So to do that, we are bringing on Marlins beat writer for the Sun Sentinel, Tim Hilly. Hey, Tim. Hey, how are you guys? We're doing all right. So can you summarize where things stand with Stanton, whether he's said anything else about this, what exactly he has said, what sense you've gotten of his mental state? Uh, well, it would have been really interesting to talk to him a day after he made those comments. Uh, he, he said that Thursday and then Friday night, and the Marlins and Dodgers uh, had a bench just clearing uh, uh, tea time in, on the field uh, before another Marlins lost. Uh, Ross Stripling threw behind Giancarlo Stan. Stan took a couple steps toward the mound, and then you have 60 bodies uh, very tightly bunched crawling up the third baseline. But after that, Giancarlo didn't talk to reporters. Uh, he didn't talk to reporters again Saturday afternoon. And then so we, we finally got him Saturday night after he drove in three runs with three doubles and the Marlins won a game. So he was happy then. Uh, he pointed, as a, uh, you know, it's kind of frustrating from a reporter standpoint, but he, he, he kind of played it perfectly, unfortunately, uh, waiting to talk until he had a really good game. Yeah. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, he's got other things going on in L.A. Obviously, he's from out here. Lots of family and friends, but uh, he pointed to the benches clearing excitement as a wake-up call for the Marlins, which paid off Saturday, not so much on Sunday. So, you know, I don't know how much uh, meat there is there. Mm -hmm. So part of my question is, like, if he's frustrated with the state of the franchise, you know, what did he expect when he signed on for 13 years? Because this it's never been a, a particularly well, well-run well franchise. I mean, not to, you know, be rude about it, but like that feels like an obvious question. It is an obvious question, and it's hard to know what he expected. I guess he expected $325 million. <laughs> right. There's not much I wouldn't do for that. Right. Right. And to be honest, you know, I don't want to pretend that I'm inside his head, really, because we only spend a very small part of the day with them. But everybody's reaction, really, when John Carlos signed that contract was, OK, well, for how many of those 13 years is he actually going to be in Miami? You know, given right. the way that the, the Marlins have gone in their quarter century of existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember him tweeting back in 2012. This, this was after the Marlins made that trade with the Blue Jays, which right. by the way, looks when you look back at who was in that trade and the fact that he was upset about that trade, it seems like time has passed very quickly because the Marlins were giving up Jose Reyes, Josh Johnson, Mark Burley, and John Buck, which is not something that would even register if it were to happen right. today. <laughs> Some of those players are retired. Some of them are not good anymore. But he was upset at the time and he said, all right, I'm pissed off with three exclamation points. And then he said, plain and simple. And so that caused a little bit of a, a stir at the time because you don't mm -hmm. usually see players 
come out and be that frank about their frustration. But yeah, that I mean, along the lines of what Michael is saying, these are still the Marlins. It's still Jeffrey Luria's team for now. So it's not totally shocking that they are not winning. Although, you know, obviously they've had a lot of things go wrong and I would imagine that losing Jose Fernandez both emotionally and on a performance basis, whenever the Marlins had Fernandez and Stanton on one team, you always kind of looked at them as a possible sleeper surprise team because they just kind of needed to put decent guys around those two and that would get them part of the way there. But losing Fernandez and trying to somehow build a starting rotation with the remnants of what they had left was a a pretty tough task for any team. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it a lot and, you know, the baseball world has talked about it a lot, but losing Jose Fernandez from a pure baseball perspective really was a paradigm shift for the Marlins. Uh, They went from a team that was really close to being ready to compete and genuinely, as opposed to just, talking about that in spring training to uh, what they are now. And nobody really expected them to be quite this bad uh, through one quarter of the season. But uh, you're starting to hear the voices outside the organization, at least that a fire sale here may, may be inevitable, may, may be time to blow, blow it up again. You know, starting with Ken Rosenthal uh, a couple of days ago, wrote that our, uh, the Sun Sentinels, Dave Hyde wrote it. And uh, anybody who's been paying attention uh, has been thinking that since last fall. Does the ongoing sale of the team complicate that? Like if someone is buying the team, you'd think it might throw a wrench into things if you suddenly started trading everyone. I don't I don't know how much that affects the franchise value, but at least somewhat. It prob- I would imagine that it complicates things, you know, at least in terms of trying to move some of your bigger pieces like, say, Marcelo Zuna. But I don't think it would prohibit uh, some sort of midsummer breakup, you know, because we, we have an idea of who is interested in buying the Marlins, whether or not they have the money is another uh, issue. <laughs> right. uh, but it's easy enough to say, hey, you know, you're sort of close to buying the team. This is what we're thinking. Uh, you know, to, to me, it would be easy enough to say, you know, we're kind of going in this direction because the smart baseball people, any prospective buyer, I can't imagine them looking at this group and saying, no, you know, that's a deal breaker. If you trade, you know, if you trade a couple of players, no, no deal. Uh, if, if anybody's saying that, then they don't really want the Marlins anyway, because the new owners are probably going to have to go through this process uh, one way or another. I don't know if there's a question in here, but I wonder if the state of the farm system complicates that more than the sale, just because, you know, you think about a fire sale to restock a system and Yelich is young and under cost control and Stanton's young and under cost control. And the farm system is as it's constituted right now is probably the worst in baseball, if not in close to it. And they haven't drafted well, they haven't done well on the international market. So like part of me just wonders like help is not on the way. You could be looking at an Astros style teardown if you get rid of Stanton and or Yelich. Oh, absolutely. I think any sort of, fire sale or whatever is followed by a complete or nearly complete rebuild. To me, the only two pieces that should be untouchable are Yelich, who, yes, is young and uh, ascending, probably, and JT Romuto, their very young catcher who's under control for seven more years, and uh, they view as, you know, a really franchise catcher, a guy who's going to be an all-star. Other than that, you know, Marcel Zuna is very good, don't get me wrong, but He's coming up on free agency quicker than the other guys. John Carlos Stan, 
obviously if you can get out under that out from under that contract, I, I think you have to, uh, depending on how much money they have to eat. And then there are smaller, more bit players. D Gordon has a few years on his deal. That's not outrageous, but if you can find somebody to take him, then, you know, who knows a bunch of relievers, David Felt, Kyle Bearclaw, short-term guys like Ziegler. You know, I, I don't think if they were all in, then there would be really, it would only be Yelich and Real Muto who, who I wouldn't trade. Not that I'm trading anybody. I'm very unqualified to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so the Stanton contract, when he signed it, it had the potential to be the biggest deal ever signed, although there were some caveats to that. It was technically a 13-year, $1,325 million deal. This was in November of 2014, so Stanton was coming off his age 24 season, and as mm-hmm. you said, it seemed unlikely that he would spend all that time with the Marlins for multiple reasons. One, he just might not want to stay with the Marlins. Who knows what shape the Marlins would be in, but also just based on the history of deals with opt-outs and Stanton has the ability to opt out of the last seven years and $218 million of this deal. And at that time, we'd seen lots of players opt out and it seemed like Stanton was still sort of on the way up and it might be below market deal by the time he got to that point. We might see him be able to make more than that. And since that time, he has sort of stagnated as a player. Like if you just look at his rate stats before and after it was signed, he was a better player before it was signed. And of course, he's had injuries and not all of those injuries are his fault, if you can call any injury someone's fault, but he got beaned, obviously. But sure. he hasn't really grown as a player. He still had some trouble staying on the field. And I don't know how much of that you can attribute to his frustration with the Marlins and the mindset. And if he's so frustrated, maybe that's holding him back on the field in some way. But where are we now as far as the outlook for this deal? Is he going to be stuck with the Marlins for that whole time because he won't be able to make that much money? Or will he leave for for less and complicating things even more? He has a full no trade clause, although it's not like he would really ask for an extension or anything if he were to be traded because he's signed through age 38. This would be anyway if the option were picked up. So it's really sort of fascinating just how much the perception and the outlook of this contract has changed in just a few years. Yeah, the, the perception has really changed and really it can change again. We're sort of, yeah. you know, two, two months into the season, not even. He's okay. You know, he's not quite that 2014 level, but he hasn't hit the slump that he did around this time last year, and he hasn't been injured. So if he can get be close to what he was, then, yeah, it's still a reasonable value on that contract. Now, whether the Marlins, whether it would still be, a, uh, you know, a, a, an overall positive for the Marlins, you know, a lot more goes into that. But uh, in terms of just salary versus production, it's not, you know, I wouldn't go as far to call it an albatross yet. Uh, and a year from now, you know, it could be another injury, another bad year. And his salary goes up from 14.5 million this year to 25 million next year. That, that's yeah. a lot tougher to deal with. So I think the, the jury's definitely still out on whether this contract is a good one, whether he lives up to it, things along those lines. But the next, 12 months really are, are critical for that, not only in terms of where the Marlins are as a franchise uh, with a sale and potential rebuild, but also uh, Giancarlo as a player 
and uh, his escalating salary. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance that the Marlins could shop him as soon as this season? Is that crazy? Because when you just look ahead between now and when he would have to make the opt-out decision, the chances of him being on a contending team seem fairly low if he stays in Miami. Maybe new ownership comes in and does something dramatically different. Who knows? But it just, given the state of the farm and the current roster, doesn't seem particularly likely that things are going to get a whole lot better in that time. And as you mentioned, he's only going to get older and more expensive and maybe less tradable. So if they are, as it seems, out of it, if if they stay out of it over the next couple months, is that something they would entertain? Do you think there'd be interest? I would I would be surprised if they entertained it as quickly as in season. Mm-hmm. You know, if the ownership thing wraps up and there's new owners and they want to look at it in the winter, that sounds a lot more realistic if that's the route they want to go. And whether they'd be takers, I, I think you'll always have people interested in the idea of John Carlos Stanton, whether they could make that work with the money in the Marlins, you know, how much money the Marlins are willing to eat on that contract. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're, they're going to have to eat some of it really. And how much they're willing to, how much they're fiscally able to is, all, is there's a lot of moving pieces there. And uh, you see all the reports about the Marlins being in debt and losing money every year. And, you know, all, all that factors into a potential John Carlo trade the way I see it. So it's a lot easier to want to trade John Carlos fans than mm-hmm. it is to actually trade him just because of right. all the money, you know, especially after this year. After this year, it's $295 million over 10 years, which on its own would be the largest contract. Never mind the past three seasons. Yeah, that's scary. I want to talk about the brawl. Can we talk about the brawl? The brawl, the stand around thing on Saturday. Yeah, if, if, I don't know if I don't know if brawl is the right word, but we we can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Ross Stripling had like I don't know if you're familiar with the the famous uh, NBA gif of Tyler Hansberg getting into it with Ron Artest, and he turns around and sees who he shoved, and he's you could see him mouth sorry, Ron. My favorite thing about this was Stripling wanted no part of stand and regretted it immediately, and then Chase Utley comes out of the dugout and uh, like stands right in front of stand is like, you're not going to hit the old guy. I know you're not going to hit the old guy. Right. I, I know the like the justification, like Mattingly said that he was upset that Seager swung 3-0 when they were up five that, runs. I think and, that's worth explaining a little bit more. Yeah, because that just seems a little weak on its face. But It's absolutely weak. Uh, in fact, when we asked Mattingly about it the, the next day, you know, as a chance to, you know, maybe walk it back a little bit, uh, he, he didn't. Uh, I was really surprised by that. But um, all right, so A.J. Ramos in the eighth inning hit Brett, Brett Edner of the Dodgers, and then Ross Stripling throws by and stand, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about it with Mattingly after the game. And, of course, everybody's denying intent, you know, usual protocol there. And then Mattingly just sort of reaches for the Corey Seager thing, which was in the seventh inning, swinging at a 3-0 pitch with a five-run lead, two more turns at bat for the Marlins. And, you know, as if that – was just an insurmountable lead. Uh, you know, I don't know what that says about Don Madison. Right. If it is, Don you Madden can understand why Stan wants out. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, but to me, I have a hard time believing that Madison really truly believes that he sometimes reaches for things when he's frustrated. There was a couple, there was an occasion a couple of weeks ago where there was a call that was reviewed and it went against the Marlins, but seems like a pretty reasonable call. And he just, was very unhappy with it and, you know, not happy with the umpires. 
uh, and that just seemed out of line for the usual even keel Don Mattingly. Uh, and this seemed to me like another occasion like that. And the way he mentioned it was after discussing, you know, the other hitting at you know throwing behind Stan. He mentioned after he said he said it as if it was almost like a, you know, if you really want to keep scoring, count every little thing. Hey, here's Corey Seager swinging. So to me, it wasn't it wasn't him saying Corey Seager started it. It was just more uh, kind of nitpicky uh, if you're going to talk about every little unwritten rule. And then it just sort of blew up because that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's bored with these things, but I'm not. I, I can't get enough of the, the benches clearing stand arounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of chest beating. Yeah. So can you also give us a, an update on Yelich? Because he's a guy who seemed to make some real strides last season further strides were expected and haven't come thus far everyone was sort of speculating about whether he could hit more balls in the air because he was a, a heavy ground ball guy so far it hasn't happened the power hasn't really come dramatically so is there anything he can continue to to work on to get to that next level he you're right. Last season, he did make progress, and a lot of that progress, especially with the power in the second half, was in part because his ground ball rate went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year, he has lost all of those games. Yeah, He's right back where he was in terms of ground ball percentage a year ago, and in attempts on my, on my part and on the part of others to talk with him about hitting philosophy, strategy, ground balls, fly balls, he's not really interested in that or at least in those terms uh he's more about learning the league growing as a hitter things along those lines uh contact points swing uh so that he just doesn't think in those terms so i think it's difficult for him to decide oh, i'm going to make such and such tweak that's going to give me more lift and then more balls will go out of the park now he has that power he's a strong dude even though he's kind of lanky but he just is wary i think of changing what has made him so successful to this point of his career, you know, being a moderately successful young major league outfielder, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah. So he doesn't want to uh, fix what's not broken, but you know, maybe it is broken, you know, maybe they're <laughs> right. maybe they're not, not broken as um, that it's not working at all, but broken in the sense that uh, he's not maximizing what he could do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, lastly, I guess this has been somewhat depressing for any Marlins fans who may be listening, if there are Marlins fans. But <laughs> is there a bright spot? Is there someone, I guess, other than Ozuna, is there someone either whose play has been particularly impressive, a prospect who's on the way, someone who should be a lot better than he's been thus far? Anything that uh, you can give people to cling to? Well, Ozuna's been very good, as you mentioned. Uh, the prospect wise Braxton Garrett who is their top prospect and was their top pick last summer he has had he's been pitched in all of three professional games all in low a and but he's been good so that, that's a start <laughs> as far as building the farm system goes and for the major league roster uh Dan Straley sort of a journeyman stuck at a full season with the Reds last year the Marlins have him now uh he's emerged initially by default as the best starting pitcher and now on merit uh, he has had eight starts in a row with four hits or fewer, which is sort of a quirky, arbitrary thing. But, you know, in terms of opponent's batting average, you know, and things along those lines, he's, he's been very good. He struck out 14 batters one game. He threw five and a third no-hit innings another game. So he's got sneaky good stuff. 
And, uh, you know, as far as days to look forward to a Marlins game, uh, Dan Shirley starts are quickly becoming a, a fun thing. Uh-huh. Well, that's well, something. there's a new definition for damning with faint praise, but <laughs> uh, catch Marlins fever. Dale Straley starts every fifth day. <laughs> We're gonna get emails. <laughs> will we? I don't know. I don't know that we will. <laughs> All right. I hope Ichiro stops hitting 162 because that's especially me, me depressive. It, it is. I, I would hate to see him go out like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially because he's got seven more years left. Until he reaches his goal, right. he's going to make it. <laughs> right, right. So you can find Tim on Twitter at Tim B Healy. He writes for the Sun Sentinel. He has a book coming out next month: Hometown Hardball, a minor league baseball road trip from the rocky shores of Maine to the bright lights of New York City. You can pre-order that now. Tim, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed it. All right. That is it for today. We'll be back with a second show of the week as usual on Thursday. Pleasure podcasting with you, Michael. College baseball conference tournaments start this week. Oh, I am so excited. <laughs> you suggested that we do a preview of that and your Skype immediately cut you off, which seemed like a sign. I'm not going to say that it was. But... I, I think we should wait for the week before regionals because all the <laughs> all the good college baseball writers will be off at the tournaments and they'll be doing six mm. uh you know, six games a day and stuff. So we'll, yeah. we'll have an easier time booking guests next week. Oh, and that's... the four people who tweeted me every week, like, when are you going to do a college baseball episode are going to be really, really going to get their hopes up about this. Well, we've got the draft coming too. So you'll have your chance to talk about some college baseball players one way or another. All right. We'll talk to you all soon.